Well, hello and welcome to episode 66 of the 1099 for the week of November 7th, 2016. I am your host, Josiah Renauden, and with me today is the brand new games reporter and assistant editor at Paste Games and a former freelancer for Polygon, Gamasutra, Unwinnable, and like 19 other different sites. Holly Green. Holly, how are you doing today? Hey, everybody. I feel like we probably should have done this podcast like a year ago because, I mean, we actually worked together for a long time at Game Ranks. Uh, yeah but never really had a chance to actually talk on a podcast. And now that you're at one of my favorite places, Paste, which is like, I feel like I should get some sort of like kickbacks from how much I talk about Paste games on this podcast. <laughs> like I've talked with Garrett and I've talked with a lot of freelancers who've come up through Paste. Uh, and I just think like the freedom Paste gives writers, what Paste produces, the the chances they take with some of that content is super fascinating. So big question, how did this opportunity come about? Like how did you become a member of Paste Games? Um, I don't know. When I think about kind of everything that led up to it, it, it like was actually a longer process than you'd think in the sense that, um, it probably wasn't until what, June 2014 that I started freelancing. And that was with my first piece for Polygon. And at the time, I was just kind of personally competing with my peers and kind of trying to push myself with my writing. And I don't think I really thought that I would really, um, really make a thing of it with freelance i just wanted somewhere you know i wanted to occasionally put bigger pieces out at different publications to kind of expand my horizons a bit but i didn't think i'd make a a real go of it Mm -hmm. um so i kept on chipping away at that which is how i came back around to paste at one point i think um someone had forwarded me an email from garrett where he just been doing an open call for i think it was one of the paste monthly issues and um he and i were talking and I had admitted to him that, you know, I was kind of sad that he never reached out to me and asked me to write anything for him. But, you know, I, I gave him a couple of pitches that were some thoughtful pieces that I, I was in the process of writing. And um, so those are the first two I think I got mm-hmm. were their pace games. That was when I did on Firewatch and then I did a, another one on Life is Strange. Yeah, I think it was just... um like pretty much 24 hours after I'd said on Facebook that I was leaving game ranks, <laughs> Garrett was like, you should freelance for us a whole bunch. And um, Jen kind of popped in and said the same thing. And um, kind of both of them shared with me at the time, you know, there'd be a position opening up in the future and they'd like to keep me in mind for it. Mm. And um, I said, okay, whatever. I don't, you know, I just gotten passed over for a position at Zam. So I was just kind of, you know, not really counting on anything and um, it's it's so hard to count on any sort of full-time job in this industry too because right. like like it you was, i got passed over for like a few major full-time ones and when people say like we think we got something for you like okay but like once i actually am getting paid then i'll like then i'll believe you exactly and so i was um at that point i think i was just like so pumped and motivated that i still had a career even if i didn't have a full-time position at a site um I, I was just very motivated and I learned a lot of things at game ranks in terms of, um, I don't want to say generating content, but you know, just writing really informative and entertaining things that are search engine optimization friendly and pulling yeah. all skills together with something learned at game ranks. So I started just like bombarding Garrett with pieces that were like that entertaining, informative listicle format and, you know, suiting his needs while also writing something that I really wanted to write. And so, that's how, let's say that's how I got offered to do freelance over at Kama Sutra, which is really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I just kind of stuck around, and you know, uh, when a position did open, they actually gave it to Gita. But um, since she moved on to Kotaku, that opened back up again, and um, yeah, it uh, just one thing led to another. I guess you know, I, I stuck in there long enough. I, I guess I really didn't believe that a position would open up. Yeah. Maybe I thought something else would pop up first. Um, there's a another site that's opening up maybe a PC arm of the of the website, and they were like, "Oh, well, are you interested in having you know lead editor role over there?" And you know, honestly, I think I thought that would uh, pop up first before anything for Pace Games. But here we are, and this past week was my first official week. Yay! So I, I have a successful week completed under my <laughs> <laughs> one week down. Uh, when when Gita got that job, was there any part of you that was like, maybe this is just never going to happen with Paste? Because you were kind of not oh, promised. Goodness. But You know, they told me that they were going to offer it to her first. And if she wanted it, that was what was going to happen. Mm. And again, it was just kind of like, cool, all right. At that point, you know, I just 
was so grateful that I was getting these offers for freelance after the whole thing with game ranks. And, um, so, you know, I, it, I didn't get discouraged, but at the same time, I, I finally got to the point where I don't get my hopes up. Yeah. I had like a couple of close calls with another couple major sites and, you know, just, uh, got to take it easy when it comes to that stuff. It's so easy to get discouraged as a writer as it is without, you know, on top of that feeling that allowing yourself to feel that crushing rejection from when you take things personally. It's just yeah. like so easy to do. And <laughs> it's so, almost too easy to do. And that's the problem. Like, even if, uh, as writers, like I, I, I've always thought like, I have a pretty thick skin with writing and I would assume you do at this point too, to a certain extent after being in this for so long, but there's different things sometimes that hit you that you've never been hit with before. And that's when you're like, Oh, didn't expect that to impact me as much. Like maybe you're great at taking edits, but maybe this one person, uh, like, rejects this pitch you turned in or rejects this like full-time work and someone else gets it and you're like man i really thought i would be able to take that but nope that one's gonna sting yep i still have my moments with that i still have like my my little sore spots but but yeah when it came to pace it was just um it was so validating that garrett and jen wanted to work with me and just um to have my skills and input taken seriously was you know so validating that I found a lot of motivation was just coming so easily to me. So, you know, it just uh, felt natural. All of this was natural. Slipping back into an editor role feels very natural for me. You know, this week was a lot of managing, you know, incoming new freelancers and commissioning pieces that I can um, put on the schedule for the week while, and actually two weeks while Garrett's going to be on vacation. Mm -hmm. And man, it's, it's inspiring because some of the ideas people come to me with is just like, wow, I would have never thought of that, but oh my God, yes, let's do this. <laughs> let's make it the best. Freaking like someone pitched to me just yesterday a piece about games that have music that's primarily based on mouth noises. Uh-huh. <laughs> I, was just like, I was like, what? Yes. I'd like, tell me more. <laughs> yeah. Like that's again. And that's what I like about paste is because, and this is in no way shitting on GameSpot or IGN, but GameSpot or IGN probably wouldn't run with that. That's not their audience. It's not what they're going for. And Paste, when I, I've only written one article for Paste because not long after that, I stepped out and started doing work for uh, Tan Gentleman and Sony. But like, I wrote about the story of um, Ian Stalker who made a scapegoat and then a scapegoat two, which Double Fine worked with him for, and how he went from like. XNA crazy Xbox Live indie games to actually making this fully fledged like PAX 10 nominee game about a goat. Uh, and Garrett's like, that sounds great. Let's go with it. And he was the only person who like saw that article and was like, no, it's a great idea because everyone's like, ah, well, you know, SEO traffic. And Garrett's like, no, 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 no. Like human interest story. Let- let's roll with it. And like that kind of stuff is just so exciting. And that's why anytime I ever talk to people who are like, where should I pitch? Uh, especially like, if I don't want to pitch to the like GameSpot IGN level, where should I pitch? I'm like, go to Pace because they just have cool shit and they have good editors. And I feel like in a in a sense, they kind of made a little bit more room for sites to operate like that because mm-hmm. you see that model popping up more and more. I mean, you could look at Vice Gaming yeah, and say some of the more interesting things they're doing there, like, you know, kind of cultivated a little bit of a space for that. Not that there weren't other uh, publications to contribute, but it's just... You know, there's a more space at the table for a greater diversity of, of the type of writing that's out there. Totally. And I, and I like pace games because, I mean, I feel like Garrett and Jen recognized my ability, again, to write something of value that's informative that I want to write, but do so in a way that's, you know, palatable to the greater internet and to meld those two together. I mean, that's really hard, but at the same time, I am a writer and I am an editor. And so that, that is a skill set I should have. And, um, you know, some of the stuff that's resulted out of that, I've just been so gosh down, darn proud of because it's, you know, if you can find a way that anybody can access and digest a, a really thought-provoking piece of information, and that inspires me to be a pay- like some some. When you look at the stuff that I do at Gama Sutra, like that stuff really inspires me because it's about game development and design, and that's you've got this reverse engineering process psychologically you're creating something for players to experience and, mm-hmm. and guiding them through that and that 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 gets me out of bed in the morning oh my gosh let's talk about that i want to educate <laughs> everybody it's amazing and i feel like in some ways paste 
we can still do that even to like a, the regular gamer audience. It doesn't have to be for the game dev audience like over at Gama Sutra. Like we can paint it up in a way that's really thought provoking and introduces some concepts to our audience that, that maybe they wouldn't have otherwise known. Like, um, for instance, I got someone right now working on um, a piece for me about rubber banding AI. Okay. Mm-hmm. When the artificial intelligence in the game has built, been built such that um, it can break the rules such just, just enough so that um, the game remains competitive. And this happens a lot in racing games. Yeah, Mario Kart 64 was awful with that. Right. Um, see, now, I love talking about game design and game dev, and yet that was a term I was not familiar with until that one moment. And then once I understood what he was getting at and asked him, you know, okay, can we reformat this into a listicle and you can provide some examples in games where this has been done and you know, da da da. Um, I was like, hey, we can teach our audience something. And we can do it in this really entertaining format that people are going to, like, they're going to be way more motivated, you know, when things are broken down into listicles, something really digestible. You know, they're going to be more willing to uh, to take a chance on that new information mm-hmm. and to absorb it and to hold on to it. So it's like, yay, we get to teach. Well, totally. And, because, and like, awesome. yeah, like, when you, when you just have this idea of, like, all right, let's talk about rubber banding AI, and if you have a... 1500 to 2000 word feature that is not really structured in a way that grabs attention it's like maybe it's interesting information but person who just enjoys uh playing racing games might not really be that fascinated that if you use examples like you said build it as a listicle like do stuff like that you're gonna grab more people like and that stuff the game design stuff is fascinating i do think that a lot of people who play games do have this kind of outside just interest in understanding like there's how they're made in general when i went to um before here they lie came out when i was over i was in santa monica and i was checking out the game and got to see kind of the behind the scenes like hey here's like the engine we use and how things are placed in the world and like i had never really seen that like you know just dropping things out like hey by the way we can expand this train car if we want to and like just seeing how games are done when you have no real reference point of it even if you love games you might have never really dug into that Having someone who understands it explain that to you in a uh, in an interesting interesting fashion is like so cool to me, and I, I do think like you're uniquely like built to do something like that because you've been an editor and you understand how to make things you know quote unquote SEO friendly, but also not strip away what makes them fascinating. Right. It's a. I mean, and it's a challenge, and there's a balance you got to find there. And like I have, you know, there's different sites that I look to a little bit um, for how I want to structure things that I do at Pace Games, whether it's how they handle their social media or how they handle their headlines. But I think you can kind of look, um, like if you look at more the uh, real news, real journalism side of BuzzFeed, mm. and then you look at uh, what Cracked does with their listicles, and then you kind of combine the two, that's a little bit of what I go for in the sense that there's a way to get people's attention. I, I often tell my writers, your headlines need to be conversational and invitational they need to provoke curiosity and and inspire someone to click but at the same time not misleading and then the information itself you know like i said making it digestible palatable entertaining that's that's always what i'm going for with you know whether it's my stuff or you know i'm trying to shape what a freelancer is doing and so i think it's i think it's working well well for us i think we're gonna see growth you know at pace games during my time there but you know, it's been a week. So <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you haven't doubled the traffic by like a month, I'll be fully disappointed. Like I, I, those are the kind of expectations I'm setting up right now. So I, a lot of freelancers listen to this podcast. And again, I have talked about uh, pace gaming, like maybe too much on this podcast. So in terms of pitching, I know you did tweet out some guidelines kind of for like, Hey, this is a good way to pitch me. But what would you tell freelancers now about what to aim for? What pitches do you hate? What style of pitches do you love? What format's the most effective? I know you're talking about listicles and making things more digestible and interesting in that way, and I think that's a great way to look at it. But when you get an email, what's the kind of email that grabs your attention? You say, oh my God, I need to pay this person to write this like now. Anyone is listening, interested in doing freelance, and especially for paced games, you can go on my Twitter feed right now. Um, I'm Winners Use Drugs. And if you scroll down, you should be able to find a Google Doc that I wrote about this very subject. And you can refer to that uh, after the podcast, you know, and, and find some information you need in terms of getting hold of me or Garrett, etc. Um, I've read a lot of pitches. I've written a lot of pitches. 
And one thing I really want to stress to a lot of people is that, you know, editors are very pressed for time. And the best thing you can possibly do for them is to not waste that precious little time. And Mm -hmm. so you have this immense challenge of trying to prove in a very short amount of time that you um, basically you can do the job. Editors want to work with people who they know can get the job done. And that's why they often end up, you know, reaching out to people that they know and freelancers they've worked with before and people within their social circle. These are people that they feel they can trust. And so that that's a, a hurdle that, that freelancers have to overcome when they approach a new editor is that this person has maybe no idea who you are or, you know, your consistency as a writer or your strengths as a writer or kind of the topics you like to cover. These are all relevant pieces of information to that editor and you need to deliver it in the shortest amount of time possible. And so that means being very succinct. Um, I do offer a format in that Google Doc that I'll, I'll go over now, but um, you can refer back to that and kind of use it as a blueprint. But essentially, you know, when you approach an editor, you want to say, this is who I am. This is who I've worked for. The, these are the topics I like to cover. Here's the pitch I'm working on. Here's my, you know, you want like three to five links of um, other pieces that you've done for other publications. Um, you know, if possible, demonstrating your knowledge on the specific topic that you're you're discussing in your pitch. And then just kind of thank you for your time, rep, you know, references available upon request, put your name, and that should be it. Um, that actually sounds like a lot, but it's not necessarily. You know, mm-hmm. typically my pitch would sound like, um, hi, my name is Holly Green. Um, I'm a freelance reporter and critic. I've worked with Polygon, Gamasutra, Pace Games, and a number of other publications. Uh, right now I'm working on a piece about Firewatch and about um, – you know, the tragedy of inconvenient love and how the romance between Deborah and the protagonist is in, serves as an example. And then what uh, for that piece, when I pitched the Firewatch piece, I actually included uh, an excerpt of the draft. I said, you know, I'm aiming for 2,000 words. Right now it's at 1,500. Here's the excerpt. And I said, okay, here's three other pieces you may be interested in if you want to see my quality of work. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, References available, you know, thank you for your time. And that that's all it really needs to be. But again, you have to pack in all the information you want, examples of your work. You want to show that you've worked with other people, that you've been consistent. And then, you know, give the editor everything they can need immediately at their disposal to, uh, to make that assessment. As for the content of your pitches, that's, that's a little harder to give advice on. You know, um, it sounds too, too simplistic to say, we want you to say something new. Yep. But the point should be to say something new. It should be thought provoking. <laughs> it should be it should be to be thought provoking. Like I, I have a couple of people who, you know, they pitch me stuff and they're like, Well, I want to write a piece about how this game was great and nobody pays attention to it, but it is awesome. Yep. And like, oh, okay, well, you need to go a little bit deeper than that. What can what can we really say here? And so sometimes my job as an editor is drawing that out a little bit if there's promise there. But a lot of times I might not have the extra time to do that because sometimes the role of an editor means teaching people how to write. And sometimes teaching people how to write means trying to teach people how to be insightful and to look within themselves and kind of dig a little deeper and challenge themselves to, to really think about something and, and challenge other people to think that's a little hard to teach. That's, that's, that's much harder. And so, you know, sometimes shaping that has to happen on a case by case basis. It's, it's, um, hard sometimes to tell people that um that their observations are surface level yeah well and so so many pitches like you mentioned before do start that way of just this person saying like i really enjoy this game i want to write about it i don't think people pay enough attention to it and you have to look at that and be like okay but like what am i really getting out of this besides like maybe a five years 10 years 12 years too late review of this game without a score at the end like what is that really going to do for me and that was always i remember my first uh game spot article which i've talked about this podcast before but it started out as this pitch as a re-review of final fantasy 8 because GameSpot was doing re-reviews and then kevin van ord was like how about you do like a retrospective and i had to go about this like okay here's this game that a lot of people know about that I have this very special connection to how can I say this in a way that people haven't said before? And that's the challenge for me. It was looking at it as like, here's this emotional connection as with me. Here's how a lot of final fantasy characters had kind of been like 
smaller proportion-wise, and Final Fantasy VIII was the first time they actually looked like regular people, and half of that was because they wanted to give it a more, like, human, lifelike, relatable quality, and that came through in this way and that way, and doing stuff like that and researching why certain things made you feel this way. And that could be hard to do to understand why this specific game grabbed you. Why did you fall in love with this specific title? Exactly. Um, But but a writer has to be challenged. Think about that and dig deeper. Or, I mean, you can't be a game critic unless you really start to dismantle that stuff. And so helping someone get there, man, that is really hard. So sometimes I notice as an editor, when I am talking to a freelancer about one of their pitches, you know, I'll, I'll decide to kind of direct it a little bit and say, you know, I've got maybe a greater kind of bank of knowledge on game design theory or other things that perhaps they they haven't considered before and i'll say oh you know here's a link to this and i want you to read this and think about this and and how you might incorporate it or take this into account in your piece or consider this angle or could you look at these examples and cite these examples and discuss them in your piece um you know one person had come to me with the pitch basically like this game's great nobody realizes it and what we turned it into you know, once she kind of got through and articulated what it really was she liked about the game, what came out was that she really appreciated how funny the game was, even though it used a silent protagonist, and how sometimes that can be that silence can be used to enhance comedy rather than hinder it. Oh, that's and like, great! And I was like, "There we go! Yeah. Now we have a piece." Like you the know? comical so- silent protagonist, where everyone's like talking to them and avoiding. It's this weird like tiptoeing around the fact this person can't talk or maybe even the characters like in the world are pretending this guy's talking and he's not and there's this weird strange comedy behind that it's something i never thought about but i've totally experienced in a jrpg before yeah so it's like that right there that's a really good example even just recently where sometimes your your role as an editor is to help people get there and that that requires in a way it's like sometimes i have to sacrifice ideas that maybe i would have run with and 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 written about and made money off of but you know Mm. and sometimes you wonder you wonder if you put all this effort into a writer if it's going to amount to anything you know i get so many people who who think they can do the work and it turns out it's not for them and they they come in so passionate and they have so many ideas and then poof gone i can't even tell you how many times that happens so sometimes you've got it it's really hard to gauge what's going to be the best use of your energy i think that's another reason why editors sometimes you need to come to them already with a good batch of work because it's like the best thing you can do is show that consistency is that's when i talk about showing an editor that you can do the work it all comes down to that right there consistency and that that's something that people recognize all over the web, no matter what they're doing in producing content. It's that you don't really start to build an audience until that audience knows you've been here a while and that you're still going to be here for a while. Uh, and, then, and then you're stick around and follow through. And so that's why so much of your task is, is proving that to editors. And that's sometimes you, you know, enthusiasm and passion and all those things you, you can, you can get that across in an email to an editor, but we can't necessarily trust that that means you're the right person. Mm-hmm. You know, charisma, charm, all of that only goes so far when really at the end of the day, we want to know that you're going to reach your word count and you're going to get your draft to us on time and, yeah. and that it's going to be quality work. And, um, you know, so I, I try to balance taking a chance on people with also um, reserving my energy so that I can, be there for people and help them become better writers that, you know, just sometimes you wonder, is it going to amount to anything? Yeah. You know? Speaking yeah. of taking chances on people, I, you mentioned, I think it's critical that you do send like two, three, four links to your past work saying like, I've written for this site, this site, and this site. But mm-hmm. let's say someone comes with you to you with a good idea and they have a sample of it that sounds good, but they have never been paid to write. Like they have written for some blogs or something like that, but they've never been at any of the major sites you've ever heard about before. Do you take a chance on that person? Because that's something that I know a lot of people who listen to this, will, I've gotten emails saying like, I think I'm ready to take that first step to getting paid for this, but I've never done it before. Where do I start? Like, do you think paste is a good home for that? I think, I think when someone's getting started, it's, I mean, it's this baby steps process where it's like maybe first, the first couple things you write are on your own personal blog because mm-hmm. then you can show that to people over at smaller sites and they have something to look 
back to and refer and say, oh, you know how to write, you know how to do the work, you know. And a little bit, I try not to be a snob about where people are coming from in terms of when they give me those links to their work. You know, I don't immediately dismiss them just based on the name of the site. You know, I try not to let um, unfamiliarity, unfamiliarity be, be a block there. You know, so in that sense, coming to me without having been at bigger publications and saying I have this pitch is okay. I think if a person is just starting out and they, they're like, I'm going big. I'm I'm pitching a pace right away. Yeah. And you don't have anything, you know, link wise to show me, you know, well, first of all, you should you should probably try and test the waters a bit, at least on your own personal blog, even if you can't get published elsewhere. Mm. But probably one of the best things you can do is approach them with a fully completed draft, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. Just give them something in full, like they can read at least the first couple of paragraphs and see how much work editing you is going to entail because I've yeah. had, I've had people in my life where I get stuff and I'm just like, this would take me five or six hours and it would still be hard to read. And you need to do more here before you bring this to me. And other people I'm like, Oh my God, this is great. Oh, I just <laughs> have to check for funky punctuation. This is amazing. When I get those people, I'm like, Oh my God, you're amazing. And I love you. Um, yeah. You don't want yeah. to be by the end feeling like I put so much editing work in this that this is essentially my piece that I'm publishing. Like, yes, it's and your I, core idea, had, but I wrote this thing. Yeah, I had those times during game ranks. I think just because I didn't um, didn't have the confidence to really put my foot down and be like, you know, could I get another rewrite? Could you clarify on this passage? Whereas now I'm a lot more confident in, in being very direct about those things, which is um, far more productive. But, oh yeah, um, yeah, I would say. You know, and that's it. I say, oh, bring me a completed draft. Is you know, if you don't have a lot of things for me to look at for you as a as a writer, and it's funny because, I mean, the first probably three or four things I ever wrote for Polygon, or ever freelanced really, you know, I pitched them with a completed draft, a draft that was so completed that it needed almost no editing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> a lot of people aren't going to be able to do that, but for me personally. You know, I already liked editing. I've always been very good at self-editing, so it, so it worked. A lot of folks, you know, you need to build up a network of writers in your peer group um, who are willing to look at your work and give you feedback and be that second pair of eyes. Because if I didn't have people like that in my life, I, you know, I wouldn't possess the capacity and ability to do that for myself. Okay. You know, good editing. Good editors had good editors, and sometimes those people are around you. You know, you need to buddy up with other writers who are who are willing to be honest with you and give that feedback. Um, and, and that's a really good way to build up the skills you need to present some to have a presentable piece to editors, even if you haven't necessarily had you know education or training. Uh, finding people who are willing to look at your work and then have them just keep looking at it and get you to a point where you're almost self-sufficient as a writer and no one's fully self-sufficient you always need people eventually to read your thing if you're going to publish it in a big site or anything like that but to be able to have enough people point out maybe inconsistencies in your writing or certain things you do that you can work on and then to actually like six months later turn in a draft to your editor without them looking at it and just getting it like perfect on that first time like that's one of the most rewarding things in the world where by it the hits. end of my game spot tenure i was close to the point where like i could turn in a review and you'd be like all right you're good and like that yeah. was like one of those holy shit I did it kind of moment. And of course you're it's not I did it. It's all these people helped me get to the point where I could do it. And that's just so valuable. And it does take a while. And I think uh, a lot of people who get like their first pitch and article accepted will be it'll be a weird experience when you get your first like after you send in your first draft, you get something back and there's just red marks everywhere. Like change this entire section or head in a different direction but you got to just keep pushing through that you got to keep learning from why that was changed to the point where before you get those edits you've already made those edits yourself you know the best thing you can really do for yourself as a writer is get to a place where you just accept that edits are going to happen and you're going to decide not to take it personally yep. you know um i've always come from this place where it's like the words on a page and how they're put together and if they sound good in our head when we read them, that is based on a lot of very subconscious responses in our body that have nothing to do with us personally. When when you read it and it's right, it's just right. It's To me, it's not subjective. To me, it's either it's good or it's not. To me, that's a matter of fact, not a matter of opinion. And a lot of people don't agree with me on that. Yeah. But when I come from that position, it's then when I read a sentence, even if it's mine, 
And it's like, if it doesn't feel right, it's because it's not. Yeah. You keep working on it until it is. And so that's, um, you know, and going back to the having peers that you can pass your writing off to and they'll, and they'll read it and edit it for you and, and improving as a writer that way, you know, keep in mind, it always needs to be a very mutual relationship where you're going to maintain willingness to do that for other writers as well. And that too will improve your writing. You know, oh, totally. being willing, being willing to start the process where you're, you're going to better examine and be more critical of writing, you know, whether it's yours or other people's, that's just something you should be in practice with all the time. Yeah. That makes you a better writer. Edit, editing, learning to edit makes you a better writer also. Yeah, it, that's, it, it's huge. And like the quality of your writing is one of the most important things. So like, why not keep working on that? Like, it's amazing where that can actually bring you. Um, you mentioned before, kind of at one point, considering stepping away from games writing uh, and not really doing this anymore. And it's it's a weird topic because, I mean, more often than not, like, Games writing doesn't pay very well. Uh, it's difficult to find freelance work, let alone full-time work. And you take kind of a silly amount of shit from the people who read your work. Not all of them, of course. There's like the comments that make your day, make your week, make your month. But then there's just the avalanche of just annoyance and people being terrible about something. Uh, so you really have to be extremely passionate to keep doing this. And maybe this is like an out of left field, overly deep question, but why did you decide, was it the pace thing that made you feel like I should keep going? Or is there something that just about this industry that you want to stay in? You know, I think when I was at game ranks, there was a huge period of time where I was very unhappy because I knew this was still what I wanted to do, but it was just really hard to accomplish it within these really narrow parameters I was being given. Mm -hmm. I just really did not have a lot of support. And I did think about walking away a lot because there there are times when it doesn't feel very rewarding because it's um it's always a damned if you do, damned if you don't situation, no matter what you write. And um, you know, as writers, we we need so much feedback and validation because we view the world in a different way. Creative people in general, we we lack an internal self preservation filter, and it makes us more creative, but I think a little easier to hurt and. So sometimes I feel like this whole industry, we're all just walking around, just like big bundles of pain all bouncing off of each other, you know? Yeah. And I, um, for me, I, I think it, I don't think it was just, it started with Polygon really, but Paste helped as well and Unwinnable and, um, and, and really Gone with Sutra a lot. It was like, um, I think anyone who's familiar with my bigger pieces of work at, at any of those publications recognizes that. You know, for me, I, there's so much I'm interested in the mechanisms of game design, and that is so endlessly fascinating to me. And I, you know, for people to have recognized my talent and skill in conveying those ideas to a greater audience, for people, but for people also to connect, connect with it emotionally, for people to say, you made me think and you made me cry, I'm connecting with people in this way that's just... It's very, very validating to me as a person. Just, um, I'm not going to get too personal or anything, but mm -hmm. it's just, it means when I open up about something very personal within my writing about game design and, and it affects somebody, it's like we're kindred spirits. Yeah. And I, and I feel better for having shared it. I feel like my burden is lessened just a little bit. And maybe somebody else's is too, because we're sharing it. And it's like, I can have that feeling all the time. Even if it's not, something sentimental even if it's not something emotional i can just have you know this really fascinating intellectual conversation about game design with someone working on this indie thing and then and, and it's almost this high that results from it mm -hmm. it was like you know polygon started giving me a safe place to start doing that with my writing unwinnable and then paste those two for those first two things i wrote for paste really clinched it and then getting approached by Gama Sutra and given this opportunity to really get in there and and almost be educational with my work, it's like I, you know, I find it remarkably easy these days to just block out the noise. You know, I find myself removing a lot of people on on social media not because I don't value what they have to say, but because I realize how often um, 
just wanting to keep up or fit in with other people kind of clouded the importance of what I really want to be writing about and talking about. And as I've pulled those people out of my life and honed my focus on my writing and my life and what I find important, I'm just more at ease with the world around me. I feel more comfortable with my career. You know, it's possible that once I reach the high score in this game (laughs) that I might, that I might still move on to, cause I'm, I'm really passionate about food photography and writing. Mm-hmm. And that's something I still kind of do in the background of everything. And, you know, as I get older, maybe that's something I'll still decide is a better career for me. I, I don't know, but these days what I'm working on, like I, I say this a lot amongst my other critics, friends that, um, I, I said the data is too important. I guess I say that so much when I have a conflict with a person, but I still want to refer back to their work, even though I hate them. You know, it's like, (laughs) no, no, the data here is too important. This knowledge is too important. All of this is bigger than this. You know, all of this, the knowledge and and all this information is just so much bigger and more important than us. And it makes it so much easier to cope. I'm, I'm, you know, it's, it's easier these days and it, and, uh, focusing, refocusing and aligning with what's really important and what I'm really passionate about and blocking out the rest of the noise has been, been really good for me. I I do think blocking out that noise is extremely valuable and not in a way where you're like avoiding problems or anything like that. Not where you're blocking out meaningful criticism, but when you're blocking out the criticism, that's only kind of pushing you away from what you want to do and what you should be doing. Uh, And I do think there's sometimes I think we undervalue uh, that connection we make with certain readers. Like, you know, you could say all the time, like, oh, I, I write for myself or I'm not worried about the comments. But when you get that email about something you wrote that's just like really thanking you for it and saying, like, this changed how I look at this or this podcast you did changed how I looked at this or the game that you're a part of changed how I felt about this genre. You're like, man, that really meant something. I'm not doing it inherently for that, but the value right. you get off of something like that is is motivating it really can keep it going it it could really keep you going in a way where sometimes you do get into even if you've reached not the peak of what you want to do but you you've hit this certain level you're like i'm doing really well i'm writing for this site and that site and that site you can still hit a grind and that grind can really be broken up by someone just saying like hey like you're really really doing well it can also be broken up when someone's saying like maybe hey by the way I, i don't think you're putting as much into this i think you've hit this kind of mundane level of doing what you're doing over and over maybe you should i i know you could try harder and like that's the kind of criticism i need sometimes where i'm like okay like let me kick it in a, a new gear let me try to push in a different direction and uh especially in social media I, i've found that i've mentally and just emotionally i'm better when i take certain criticism but understand that others is just there to stop my momentum or at least slow the momentum and avoiding that is unbelievably valuable if you want to keep doing what you're doing keep doing better at what you're doing and that's about reducing the noise essentially i mean i definitely don't believe in creating an echo chamber Mm -hmm. but neither are we as human beings yet and we have not yet evolved psychologically to a point where we can handle all of this the stimulation of constant opinions streaming in from so many people constantly all at once. Maybe we'll get there one day as, as a species, but right now, you know, Hey, it's okay to maybe reduce the noise a little bit, have varying opinions surrounding you, just not 5 million of them. You know, I don't, yeah, I don't think we're built for that yet. I I, like, it's so strange where like, I do see people on Twitter who get so deep into finding so many different opinions and so many things to look up like that where like I think it's extremely valuable to of course be empathetic and understand all these different ideas and everything that's going on but if you get so far into that you can go a bit crazy like you start like it's too many stimuli all around you and sometimes you need to of course like you said not be in an echo chamber but also stay focused a bit and not get totally lost in that like entire area. Yep, and it becomes very easy to do. Absolutely, like shockingly easy to do. Uh, <laughs> one thing I did want to ask you about, because of course, like you know, you're you're now deciding a lot of what's going to be on pace. You're taking a lot of these pitches. What type of coverage do you think in games we're sorely lacking? Are there any areas in games coverage that need to catch up to other sort of media coverage that you would like to kind of help highlight at Paste? What do you and you know what what kind of 
what types of meteor coverage are you kind of talking about here? Like, so, um, I mean, I think like right now we're finally hitting our stride to a certain extent with how we're actually talking about games and how they can talk about, you know, race, culture, political issues, more stuff like that. And before I felt like that was lacking where we're treating video games as toys that we're covering or games were almost reviewed like HD TVs where we're worried about like, does it play well? Does it look good? And move forward. And now we're kind of opening up these opportunities where we're having reviews that are more experiential and more diverse and interesting in that way like is there anything else you kind of feel like we're just not really addressing in games that could be addressed in a more interesting way like do you look at anything and be like people are covering games but missing this entire part you you talk about game design and kind of digging into that in a different way like is that kind of maybe something that you want to do at pace to like reveal game design in a way that other sites might not be doing I, I definitely think a major goal for me is to highlight and teach game design in an entertaining inform you know in a very digestible format in and I, I think it's very achievable I think it's what we're already on the path of doing um, I think we have I don't want to say the branding but we're in the unique position where we can do that mm-hmm. you know and I don't think we have to sacrifice anything in order to pull that off and achieve that. And so, um, gosh, it just makes me so excited that I even get to say that, um, (laughs) you know, so I don't, I don't necessarily think we're niche in that capacity. You know, I think, I mean, it's hard from my perspective because I've, I've been diversifying the types of writing that I commission and promote and edit. And, um, I've been doing that for so long that, you know, my perspective is a little different from other people's. You know, I think, for instance, the, the games industry is too uh, reverential. And I think that taints almost everything we do. You know, this expectation of gratefulness because we are around greatness and we have access to it. And we just get to be near it. And it's like, okay, we need to break that down a little bit. Yeah. Perhaps. Okay. I think, um, I think games journalism is really lacking in a, a strong business perspective mm-hmm. and like my friend michael footer great great reporter oh yeah he was one of the first people to really 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 start doing business reporting in the, in games journalism mm-hmm. and i think we need more of that i think sometimes we forget what journalism is actually supposed to be because we're an enthusiast press that you know? is massive like that is such an important thing to consider yep and i and i don't want us to be an enthusiast press and i and i realized that at this point what i write and what i do and what i commission maybe isn't really necessarily news or reporting anymore you know because reporting itself in games is often just such an extension of pr i mean we're just rewriting pr releases you know the um, press releases we get by email we're just finding ways to reword that and regurgitate the same information that's going to out to every single site and it's like that model doesn't work anymore. Yeah. But now we have all these writers who are so ill-equipped to do anything else. And that's that's a conundrum because the thing is is this this sector of entertainment criticism is never going to be like any other. It's never going to be like movies. It's never going to be like actual electronics because it's this combination of the two. I talk sometimes about how a good reviewer should be able to approach a game both as a piece of art and a piece of equipment. And the reason being, reason being, now normally I wouldn't say that, reason being that video games are such a highly technical piece of art that it relies on so many factors having to do with, you know, science and math and art and all these different things coming together at this intersection. That's very, very complicated. Okay. So, um, performance of that item that object you know becomes a part of the overall experience of the audience it's not something we have to worry about with movies or books we don't have to worry if we open a book if the pages are going to (laughs) turn right oh (laughs) yeah and some people are like oh well that only the game maker should have to worry about that but okay we're not there yet we're just not and so I think a good reviewer should be able to cover both aspects, both the art and the technical aspect. Yeah. Something as a product, here's how it worked, it worked well, but also, hey, here's all this other deeper stuff here. I think those can coexist, and I think that should be a goal. Um, we're just, our sector of the, this, of the entertainment world is always going to be different in that sense, you know? Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I, I think that stuff's so fascinating. I do want to hit back on that point you made where, like, the enthusiast nature 
of games press can be a problem where it's like this instead of this you know business reporting and i'm not trying to use the word objective but uh this other type of reporting you might see in other media with games it's, it, they, everyone's coming from this rabid fan mindset this like i grew up with games games to a certain extent define how i identify myself and now i'm covering them uh, and of course, there's no review that's going to be objective. I don't want that. I, I want someone's opinion. I want the experiential thing. And I do agree that we, we're, at, we're still at a point where games, like if it has bugs, if it has issues, it's still like a piece of tech that you need to talk about. Is this functional? Does this work? How does this feel? Along with what are the artistic sensibilities? What does this make me feel like? How does this succeed or fail in certain ways? But yeah, there's a, almost always this sort of tinge of, and this person's a rabid fan who's covering this. And like, Mm-hmm. that's a hard thing to separate sometimes and that's something that uh i think is important for us to mature in that way so that not everyone who is writing about games he starts every single review saying like as a massive fan of this franchise since i was 12 years old i'm like okay that colors this review in a bizarre way like i don't really know what i'm expecting moving forward what if i'm not a fan and don't want to hear it from your crazy fan perspective you know and i have a, i have some thoughts on that as well because the thing is is you, you never almost never see similar responses say from movie critics like you get fanboys but it's not quite the same yeah and it's not as widespread and i think um and i care i covered this a little bit in the review that i did for follow for and this is a phenomenon you can sometimes see pop up with with a couple of their mediums sometimes some tv sometimes books and i'll, I'll get to a minute get to it in a minute why that is um games because of their participation element, you know, there is a stronger psychological bond between a human being and their virtual avatar. And this is something that's been studied for decades, ever since the internet became a thing. There's there's a very unique relationship that's that's bonded between a person who creates either an idealized version of themselves, a representation of themselves, whether it's true to who they are or not. There's just this different bond. And acting through it, that participation level, um, the bond that it creates with the protagonist and that self-identification, that self-insert fantasy is, is so strong and it's so unique to our medium. You look at um, how much time people put into these games. Mm-hmm. And we're talking anything from, hey, I put 20 hours in this indie game to, you know, what, the top Dota 2 player has about 9,000 hours? Yeah, it just gets to insane levels. Right. At that point, you have to consider that when people go to review a game, they're not just reviewing a game. They're not just reviewing a piece of art. They're... They're reviewing something they experienced over a long period of time. They're reviewing, as I argue in my Fallout 4 review, how do you review a part of your life? Mm. You know, this is people self-insert so deeply into these virtual worlds. And anyone who's played a game when they're depressed or struggling with addiction or lost someone in their life, any of these things that you so desperately need to escape of, you know, the mundane of your everyday life. You know, it, it's not, it's not like anything else. It's just yeah. not, it, like I said, you're reviewing, it's like you're reviewing a part of your life. And I think you see that sometimes pop up in TV and books, maybe like with, um, for instance, Harry Potter or, you know, stuff like that, because it's serialized. People have invested their emotions and their time. It's emotions invested over time, that commitment right there. It's become a part, not just a part of life. It, it's it's their life, not their whole life, but it, it's crossed the line to where it becomes more personal because you've waited and you've hoped and you invested. There's that emotional investment. It's just and it's just so much greater in games that participatory element. And so I feel like that taints a lot of critics and reviewers when they they go into it. I think that's I think if we dismantle and dispel and examine the awe, we can break it apart into pieces you know if we examine it we can dismantle it and that's the thing that's right there that's where all the awe comes from you know yeah so we break that down we can be more objective reviewers but again you know opinions right it's uh, (laughs) the whole point it's the whole point it's the whole point but at the same time you know we can break down a little bit of that awe that surrounds what we do and and try to take it down a notch (laughs) yeah i i 
I get sick of like the it sounds like the person was just so excited to play this game before they even like reviewed any of it and you're like ah, I, that's not always what I'm looking for like again it's, it's it's an opinion but I want it taken from a different angle uh, and I, I do think we're eventually going to see more of that I, I do think we're tiptoeing in that direction we still have a very strong enthusiast press that's still kind of what we are it's what most people are but I do hope with some of these new sites coming up with some of these new editors coming in uh, people who maybe want to talk about games who don't have this massive background with games since they were a kid. I think that's fine. I think it's it, it cool for people to come in and kind of look at them from an outsider perspective. I, I think there's a lot of different ways to talk about games. And I think we're discovering that. And I'm looking forward for to see like different discoveries like that. How else can we talk about games other than what we've done in the past? Because we can't just stick with what we've been doing and think it's going to be perfect forever. It's not how that works. We're going to grow. Like the industry itself. Industry is growing. Let's grow with it. Uh, and I think that's cool to see. Uh, Holly, where can people find you? Like if people want to, not personally, I'm not telling, don't give me your address, but like if people <laughs> want to pitch to you, find you on social media, what's the best way to do that? Um, so I'm on Twitter as Winnergy's Drugs, and that's like the fastest and most effective way to get a hold of me at all times. Um, my email address over at Paste is hollygreen at pastemagazine.com. And you can drop me a line anytime. Like I said, on Twitter, um, there's a Google Doc just kind of telling freelancers how to pitch. And that's that was a really great guide that I think – you know, I just went into the document a couple minutes ago, and it's still full of people. Even though <laughs> up for like a week or so. So I'm guessing it's really helping people. Yeah. Let's go in there. Check that out. Get a hold of me. You know, I'm always around to answer questions, and I, I try to be as free with my time as possible for people who are just getting into this because that is – my personal way of trying to give back and diversify, you know, games journalism as a whole. So reach out to me and that would be the best way to do it. And again, I'll say it again, go pitch paste. It's, it's, it's a great place <laughs> to write and you will get better as a writer. And that's the whole goal. Uh, Holly, that was one of the faster hours I've ever done of this podcast. I really appreciate the conversation. Awesome. <laughs> uh, I just looked at the time I'm like, man, it really has been an hour, hasn't it? Um, Super happy for you. I think it's an awesome spot for you. I think you're perfect for this role. And I am looking forward to kind of seeing what comes out of Paste, uh, who writes for it, and what cool things the entire site does. I know. I, I, I'm literally in a position where it's like, oh, I can't wait to promote this stuff that we're writing <laughs> right now. And it's like, wow, how often do you get to think that instead of, oh, my God, I'm going to annoy my friends with this stuff. It's like, no, I, I just cannot wait to share all this stuff with you guys. So, yeah, keep an eye on us. And reach out don't be a stranger <laughs> awesome yeah thank you again and thanks everyone for listening and hopefully tune back in for the next episode of the 1099